Today we are wrapping up our series of the summer going through the book of First and Second Peter, just looking at what he's written to us as a church and how we should live and what we should anticipate coming in the future. And so today we're going to come into Second Peter chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to there, Second Peter chapter 3, and we're going to use that, that chapter as we close out today our study. One of these days, I've enjoyed the songs, Jesus is coming back, is he not? One of these days, he is returning in power and in glory and in majesty. But until then, Peter has some words for us that we need to look at, that need to challenge us in our faith as we walk, and he's going to encourage us with these. So let's go ahead and just jump right in, and we've got a lot to dig into today. So beginning in verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 3. He's going to challenge us to, re- to trust in the return of Jesus Christ in spite of what the scoffers might have to say. And so he wants us to remember the word of God to begin with. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. If God didn't love them so much, and if Peter didn't love these people so much, this letter would not even be there. But yet he's going to write them a second time because he wants to make sure that things are going to be positive and that they're going to get their lives in order the way they need to. And so he, he says that he wants them to, to return to understand the return of Jesus Christ is coming in spite of what other people might have to say. So back in chapter 2, Peter confronts the issue of false teachers that have snuck into the church and they're telling lies about Jesus Christ and the expectations of Him coming again. And, and, And the reason is because they want to live by their own sensual pleasures and desires. That way they can do what they want and say that it's okay. But that's not the truth. Now there's a more serious doctrine that has come into play and it centers on the return of Jesus Christ into this world. The Old Testament scriptures prophesied about it, and it was confirmed and foretold by Jesus himself while he was here, that he would die, that he would be buried, would rise again, and he would ascend into heaven at the right hand of God, but one day he would come back. That was one of his final promises to his disciples. Don't worry, I am coming back. And they didn't understand how that was going to take place. Now, Peter wants to, as he says, stir up their minds. Now, that word stir is a word that that I really got a little bit of information this past week when we were down at the Gulf of Mexico. The water is agitated, and that's a word that is used when you talk sometimes about the sea and how it's agitated and stuff. We got down there just as Hurricane Grace was moving out of the Caribbean and heading over to Mexico into that area, but because of it being south in the Gulf, it was stirring up the waters there, and we had some pretty good waves when we first got there. I thought, I've never seen waves like these down in the Gulf, but these were decent. And we got to play in those. But then it, it disappeared. But on our last day, we were told that there was another hurricane coming in, Hurricane Ida. And so once again, the waters were being agitated and stirred up. Peter wants us to agitate our minds, to stir up our minds, to, to get ourselves ready for something that's going to take place. And so he says you need, to, you need to be prepared for all of this. He not only wants to stir up our minds, but he wants us to be sincere in the things that we consider. Now that word sincere, I've always thought, well, it's just an honest word, it's a truthful word, it's a pure word. Sometimes it can actually be translated pure rather than just sincere as we have in our text here in the English Standard Version. But that word comes from Latin, actually two words combined in the Latin language that mean, let me throw this out again, let me make sure I've got it correctly, that mean without wax sincere without wax how what does that mean have a mind without wax well you have to understand in the context that it is used most often in classical greek and stuff it was used to describe a potter as he was making things so if he's making a vase or a bowl or a cup or whatever and he puts it through the fire sometimes if there were impurities it would crack Well, a very skillful tradesman would then take wax 
and fill in the cracks and cover it over so you wouldn't know that it had a flaw to it. All right? Well, Peter is saying we need to have the ability to not have that flaw in us that's covered over. And the only way someone would know that is if they would hold it up to the sun or to a bright light and they could see the flaw there. Peter says, I want you to have no imperfections in your thoughts. Nothing that's covered over where you're deceiving people and thinking this. Our faith should be built upon the Word of God and the prophecies that are found therein and not upon something that somebody else is going to introduce to us. The hearsay or the heresies of that day and age were speaking out against Jesus and His coming. Some of them said He'd already returned and so there really was nothing left. Others were saying that He's not coming back at all and so we... We've got this struggle that's going on here, so he wants to give them a challenge to remember the prophecies of Jesus Christ's return. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, he says this, Knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, Well, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The phrase, first of all, lets us know that, that Jesus and the prophets long ago had told us that there were going to be people who would come in and mock this. They would be scoffers. They would be false teachers. We have to anticipate that this is going to happen. Peter's readers should not be alarmed when somebody tries to sway them to a different understanding because these people want to twist the Scripture for their own ends and their own desires. Now, throughout the Bible, scoffers have always been those who ridicule the teachings of God. In this case, they're ridiculing the idea of the second coming of Jesus, saying it's not going to happen. It just can't happen. But Peter tries, he ties their scoffing to their sinful lifestyle. He says because they're following their own sinful desires. Because they want things the way they want to receive it. They don't want to have to deal with a second coming and a judgment because they just want to live by their sinful lives. So eat, drink, and be merry. Now the form of ridicule that, pe that Peter is using here, this, this form when he comes back, he asks a question, which is a question that's often asked when you already know the answer, but why are you asking it anyway? So he says, you know, why are they saying this? And it's the same thing that was asked in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 15, when they were said, Behold, Jeremiah says, They say to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. And these scoffers are saying, Where is the second of coming of Christ? Let it come. It's not going to happen. It never has happened because nothing has ever changed in this world. It's always the same, so don't trust the fact that he's going to come. So they're asking, where is the promise of His coming? And they're asking that with sarcasm because they don't believe that it's going to happen. And there are people today who do not believe that Jesus is going to return. But to our amazement, to our wonder, and to our blessing, He is. Now the reason behind the scoffing can be understood a couple of ways. First, they don't believe that there's going to be a complete destruction of the, of the world since things like that have never happened since the world began. It just doesn't happen. Things have always stayed the same. The second and the most common interpretation among the modern commentators is that the scoffers contended that Jesus promised to come back during the lifetime of his early disciples. So if he's come back, he would have already done it. And since most of the disciples, by the time Peter is writing this letter, have died, Jesus obviously isn't coming back. That's what they're saying here. They probably would have gotten that idea from Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, when he said, Truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And it was such an expectation that led these false teachers to mention then the death of their fathers. According to that view, the fathers here must have been the fathers of the Christian faith is how they're interpreting it. But the Bible never gives us that indication, never uses the word for fathers when it comes to the apostles or the early disciples or the early leaders in the church. Matter of fact, when the Bible speaks about the fathers, it's speaking to us about the Old Testament fathers, the patriarchs that were there. And so when we consider that they're using the term fathers, we have to understand that it is those in the past, 
so they're saying, well, you know, our fathers you know, have been here and nothing's ever happened since they were here on earth. Romans chapter 11, verse 28, Paul uses this word fathers or forefathers when he says, as regards to the gospel, they are the enemies for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. He's saying that the Jews are loved by God because of their fathers, not because they're elect, because now you're the elect, but they're still loved because of those who've come before them. Peter never really answers the accusation that the early Christians had died before the return of Jesus. His answer, though, is much better. He says, the Lord has reasons for waiting, and we'll get into that in just a minute. A number of New Testament texts also seem to assume that Jesus would be back soon. So we look at what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 and 31. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For the present form of this world is passing away. So Paul is telling the people in Corinth, the day is coming really soon. And we can see that. The world is it's, it's passing away. It's not the same. Things are dying. And, and, and Jesus is coming back soon. So we have a very short amount of time. James even says this in his book, James 5, verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, it's here. And so they should be looking for it. But is that exactly what he means, that Jesus has returned now or he's already returned? Or is it he will be coming soon? We need to remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. He said, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves his home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So Jesus is telling us he doesn't even know when he's coming back. The angels don't know, and they're the messengers of God. The only one who knows is the Father in heaven. And until he makes that decision, we need to be ready. We ought not fall asleep on duty. We ought to stay awake and look and anticipate his return at any moment. Now, verse 4 may have the clearest hint about all of this, since Peter quotes them as arguing that all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, what they're saying seems to imply a, a, a different philosophy of history. Perhaps these teachers, um, they blended Christianity with Greco-Roman philosophical thought. The Epicureans, they had an idea that they believed that their gods existed but that there was nothing for them to fear from their gods because when you die, you die and that's all there is. There's no reward and there's no punishment at death. So just live life to the fullest right now. Maybe the gods might get you while you're living and maybe they're not. But hey, once you die, you die. That's it. The more like thought, thought though, is that the false teachers were simply Greek thinkers who believed that time moves in this continuous cycle and it doesn't ever move toward an end. It is always going. And so to them, all things are just continuing. It's as if God has set things in motion and they just keep spinning and there's no stop to it. But the scoffers were arguing that nature never changes. Things go on as always. Uh, the, the position is based upon their observation of nature and the things that they can understand by what they see. And so what they see is that the sun rises and the sun sets. The tide ebbs and flows. The season comes after season, just as it always does. A generation is born and a generation dies, and then another generation follows after it. Time just continues to tick and move on, and things are always the same. Now, it's not that there is no indication that things will continue to operate that they always have. And so Peter answers the question, is this? Yeah, 
nature is uniform. Nature always does the same thing. But when God steps into history, things change. And so he's going to bring forth some periods of thought. And once God did step into history, and when the world does change, it is not the same since it began. And so he wants to challenge him to remember God's work in history. So let's look at verses 5 through 9. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the word that then existed was deluged, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now the scoffers, they make two arguments in this passage of Scripture that Peter lays out for us. One is, a lot of time has passed, and nothing has happened. That's their first argument. The second argument is this, that they've observed the uniformity of nature, and that nature argues against a second coming, because it's always going to be the same thing after the same thing. And so Peter's going to answer their second argument first, in verses 5 through 7. Then they'll come in and follow up with their, with their first argument about the length and time. And so he replies to their argument about this uniformity is this. When the scoffers say that all things are continuing as they have from the beginning of creation, they're flat out contradicting the testimony in the book of Genesis, especially Genesis 1 through 6. When we begin to look at the things that happen there, I mean, that's the pointer that Peter's going to flesh out over in the next few verses. As they are arguing the uniformity of nature, they are purposefully allowing some things to be forgotten, Peter says. You just kind of overlook those passages of Scripture that contradict what your point of view is. And we tend to do the same thing today, don't we? If, if we have an idea and we want to go with that idea, we're going to ignore some things that are contrary to it. Well, they're doing the same thing. They don't want to look at what Genesis has to say. But Peter is going to bring it into play. He says, these false teachers, as they use Scripture to uphold their views, they're omitting some things in Scriptures that prove them wrong. So here they deliberately forget that the world was created by God's world and that it was also by His word destroyed. The point is this, that Peter says, if God has done that once, He can do it again. Instead of things continuing from the beginning just as they are, there was a creation. There was a beginning of time because before that, God was still there. They're not denying that. But see, time changed when God created because He created time. But not just in the process of creating this world then. You move into Genesis chapter 6 and we see that God then interrupted things in this world because when he looked upon the world, he saw that the intentions of man's heart was bent on evil. He was going to destroy that and start over again. And that's exactly what he did with Noah and his family. And so by the waters from which this world came, he used them to destroy the world and to begin again. We can't forget Noah, can we? If there was such great changes already, then there's no reason to say that there will be no change again. God stepped into history, and things changed. Jesus came into this world once, and he will come again. So we need to understand that. The thrust of Peter's argument here is clear enough. So in verse 7, Peter brings the Word of God back into play as it's going to be through God's word in which this world will be destroyed once again, but this time not by water, but he says by fire. Now that word fire is in a dative case in its construct, and therefore it can be translated two different ways. 
the word can be translated with fire or for fire. Now, if we take it to be with fire, then the earth basically says it, it contains everything that it needs for it to combust on itself and to basically explode. All right? And with the fire that is with all the flammable materials that they have in the world today, that it will destroy itself with that kind of fire. But if we take it to mean for fire, then the idea is that the counsels of God, the plan is to destroy the earth, but not annihilate it. But to, in essence, renovate it. Which is really what he did the first time with the flood, isn't it? Because when the flood came... The world is still here, but it's different. It's not the same. And so he's going to do the same thing with fire if we take the aspect of being for fire. Remember when Sodom and Gomorrah, God sent fire and he destroyed them, but still the world is there around them. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, John the Baptist agrees with this statement about God is going to destroy the world with fire. When he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Paul agrees with him as well because when he writes to the church of Thessalonica in, first, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-10, through 10, he makes this statement. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed can God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So what Peter is saying is he's holding off this fire until a judgment day approaches. So be sure of this. When we look back in history, we see that God stepped into our world and he created it. He stepped in again and he destroyed it with flood. And he will step in again with cataclysmic results. It will happen. Jesus is coming. Now Peter reminds the answer to the scoffer's second argument, specifically that a lot of time has passed and really nothing has happened at all throughout that time. But he calls his readers to stop ignoring biblical evidence. And there's one specific fact in this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter's quoting here from Psalm 90, verse 4. And he wants us to understand that even the Old Testament, they understood that there was a distinction of a time, whether it be long or short. We know that because we mark our seasons by the sun, the moon, and the stars. We have our years and our months and our weeks and our days and our hours and our minutes and our seconds. And we go everything in life by time. But God is not that way. He is not constrained by time. He is infinite, not finite like us. He is beyond the scope of time. So really for him, a day for us could be a thousand years to him. Or a thousand years for us could be but a day for him. Because he is not held within the same framework that we are. So Peter's comment on the equivalence between one day and a thousand years is this beautiful statement about God's divinity and his eternality. His superiority to time and space limitations. I mean, we're created this way, but when you consider what he has done, when he is outside of time, on earth we know there is time. We live by it every day. 
But in heaven, there is no sun, moon, or stars. There is no day. There is no seasons. It is the day of the Lord. So consider this thought. Peter is writing here. He knows that he's going to be murdered, crucified, and martyred for his faith in just a little while. All right? The day that Peter was crucified in heaven could be the same day that you die. Though thousands of years have gone by, and we count the days and the years, but in heaven it's immaterial. Literally. Time is not of any importance because he does not operate by time. So as we remember how God has worked in history, Peter now lays out God's purpose for not having Jesus return to have already taken place. So he says there in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but, what? Is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter uses the same word here for patience that he used over in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 20, when he mentioned God's patience in the day of Noah while he was waiting for the ark to be built. All right? That word is makrothumia. It means to suffer long or to put up with others. And it calls to mind God's infinite patience for sinners who provoke him and his anger to do something, and yet he's going to be patient with us, not wanting you to perish. I think that's important right there, that word. It's not that he's not wanting others to perish. He's not wanting you to perish. That's good to know that I've got an opportunity, isn't it? that he's going to wait for me to get my life in order with him and his son before he brings on the final destruction of this world. See, the Lord takes no pleasure in the destruction and the death of the wicked. You go back into the Old Testament, you look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 23 and 32, and God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And then he makes the statement of 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And Peter's making the same statement for us. God doesn't want anybody to die. He wants us all to repent. He wants us all to turn back to him. And so he's going to wait patiently for us. And God in his goodness, he tries to lead men to repentance. At least that's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, Or do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, God has endowed people with freedom to choose. And if man wants to resist, God permits him. You can, you can fight against the goads, as Scripture has said. You can do it your way. And God's going to wait, hoping that at some point you're going to decide his way is better. And so then you'll repent of your own sins. And you'll acknowledge that what Christ has done for you is greater than anything you could have done for yourself. And so you'll do it his way. Peter then gives him a challenge to remember that the end is near. So he says in verse 10 there, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter leaves no uncertainty about the fulfillment of this promise. He says it's going to happen. It will happen. And matter of fact, he uses that word, will come. In its original construct in the Greek language, the word we translate here, we say that, but the day of the Lord will come. But in the Greek it says, it will come the day of the Lord. It's going to happen. So it's, it's stressed that, that it's assurance about this thing. His day is going to come. And when it comes, we need to be prepared for that. So the day of the Lord is a phrase that's often used in the Old Testament to describe God's judgment. Peter is saying that when Jesus returns, it is the judgment day of God for all of us. And it's going to happen. 
Are you ready? The fact that it will come like a thief brings into discussion the unexpected, this, this sudden impact that, that, it, that it leave, that's going to have on us. So Peter's words echo Jesus' own words when he was giving a discourse on the Mount of Olives. So in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42 and 44 through 44, Jesus said this, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, over and over in that sermon, Jesus is, is indicating that there are no signs by which anybody could ascertain the time or the day in which he will return. You're just not going to be able to do that. Now, we've got people today and through the history of the church who have been prophesying that Jesus is going to come on a certain day at a certain time, and so you need to be, never, you need to be ready. They look at the signs of the seasons, and they try to, try to work it into a, a period where they can, they can say, okay, it's going to happen this year. It's going to happen on this day. If you find somebody telling you that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, and he can guarantee it for tomorrow because all the signs and the wonders that are taking place around our world, don't believe them they haven't a clue and i don't think god is going to be give somebody who's arrogant like that the opportunity to be right jesus himself did not even know when it was going to happen how can we think we will but we need to stay awake because like a thief in the night he is coming wouldn't it be great if he came right now finding us in a collective group together worshiping Him and praising Him and singing our praises to Him? Wouldn't that be a wonderful time? But then you think about that, and you think, if He came right now, who might not go with us? While we say, come Lord Jesus, we also want you to hold off just a bit. Because there's somebody else I want to come with us. And so he is patient. Paul says this when he writes to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 5 of his first letter, verse 4 through 10. You're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So then let us not sleep. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So returning to the earlier teaching that we are all be destroyed by fire, Peter envisions this roar as the flames are engulfing the world. Jesus spoke of the future passing away of the heavens and the earth, and Peter most likely gets this teaching from him that he's now telling to us. He's also alluding to Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4, where Isaiah says, All the host of heaven shall rot away. And the skies roll up like a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now he uses a word here for pass away. But that word does not mean annihilation. It almost has a sense of renovation to it. All right? It's but rather the heavens will pass from one state of existence into another. They'll be renovated from their form and their structure, their appearance. They will radically change, just as it did in the days of Noah with the flood. When God decided he was going to destroy the world, he did, but it's still here. Why is it still here? It's here because it's in a different form and fashion than what it was before Noah. When God created the world, he created a paradise. But he destroyed that paradise 
and we're left with the beautiful world in which we have today, which appears as if it is passing itself. But it's a different structure. And this is the word that he's telling us here. When, when God destroys this world by fire itself, it's not going to poof, be gone. But he's going to recreate it. And so we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. One that he is recreating just as he recreates us from our old person. When we accept Christ and we're buried with him in baptism, we die to ourselves and we're raised to a new life. We're a new creation. And yet we're, we're still the same person, right? We seem that way, but we're different. God's going to do the same thing in the future here. The Bible doctrine is always more optimistic, however, than other ideas that are out there. Take some of the, the heathenistic mythologies that were presented during this time as well in which Peter lived. Heathen mythology was very pessimistic. Now, Richard Wagner, I don't think we're related to him, Eric, I don't know, but Richard Wagner, he, he was a musician and, and a composer, and he's written an opera called The Ring Cycle. But it's about mythological gods, and in the fourth cycle of all this, it's called the destruction of the gods, or, or the gods' twilight. In other words, their last hurrah, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're done. And the world then is annihilated. Man, God's world itself, is all gone. But not our God. He has something unique and something different for us to say. And so Jesus... And here Peter and Paul and John and the others, they, when they speak about the ending of the earth, they speak about a new heaven and a new earth and that man is being prepared for something that's going to be wonderful if we'll accept the message that Jesus has for us. And so Peter calls us to make preparation for that day. So he gives us this call for holy living. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. That phrase, what sort of people, literally means from what country, from what race, what tribe are you? So where are you from? Peter's asking them. Where's your citizenship? Well, we know our citizenship as a Christian is not in this world. We're strangers here. We're foreigners. We're, we're just passing through. Our citizenship, our home is in heaven. We are citizens there, and that's where we belong. So Peter says, so where are you from? Are you from heaven or are you of earth? If you're of heaven, how do the citizens of heaven behave? Well, they're holy and they're godly. Well, what's it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart from the evil within this world to do service of works for God. In our godliness, it's, it's all about being reverent to Him in the character in which we live so that they don't find things against us that we're above reproach, that we're, we're, we're something that is good. So Peter calls us for an attitude of anticipation. We've got to be different than what the others are like. And so in verse 12 and 13, he writes these. He says, we're waiting for the hastening, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He uses two participles there at the beginning of this little statement, the word waiting and the word hastening. What are you waiting for? What's it mean to be waiting for something? It's not just waiting. I mean, I've been in a dentist office, and they've got a waiting room there. And you sit, and you're really not eager for the dentist to call your name, right? You almost want to say, go right ahead. You can go before me. But you're still waiting. But that's not what he indicates by this terminology, waiting. This waiting comes from two different words, pros 
which means toward and dekao, meaning expecting something, looking for something, anticipating something, eager for something to happen. So in your waiting, you just can't wait for something to happen. It's, it's like you're at the races and you're watching as the, as the runners are coming around the track and as they make the last turn, you're the one looking out there to see if your guy's in the lead and you're eager and you're getting ready to celebrate with him. That's this waiting that he's talking about. You're eagerly anticipating and, and waiting for and looking forward to what's going to happen. And then he throws in this word hastening. Now, now also that word waiting, just go back into Mark chapter 15, verse 43. It's the same word that's used about Joseph of Arimathea when Jesus has just been crucified on the cross. And listen to what it says. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who is also himself looking for the kingdom of God. That's it. Looking for, waiting, this anticipation. And so what does he do? He took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. When he saw Jesus die on the cross and everything's flooding his mind of what's just placed, he's saying, this is it. This is it. And so boldly he goes in before Pilate and he says, let me have the body. Can I take the body? Because he's looking for the kingdom of God to be ushered in. Only that kind of anticipation would have given him the, the courage and the boldness to go. And so Peter says we need to have that kind of anticipation in our wait. Looking forward to it. And then he says hastening. Which can also be interpreted as, as earnestly desiring. Perhaps our attachment to this world and, and how little we might think about Jesus coming back again shows a lot about our relationship with him. I mean, the first thing that you should think about when your eyes open in the morning before you get out of bed is, is today the day? Can today be it? And the last thing, as you close your eyes at night thinking, should I stay awake a little bit longer? I mean, as children, we, we, you, you anticipate Santa Claus coming, and so you don't want to go to sleep. When is it that we have that kind of anticipation and eagerness and earnest desire to, to wait for Jesus to show up so that we can't even fall asleep? We want to stay awake as long as we can because maybe it's going to happen now. That's what Peter is saying. We are waiting and we are looking forward to this. And we are hastening the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the promise of this new heaven and new earth has been the theme of the Old Testament prophets. And Peter's reminding them of that. God has promised it and it was a hope and a vision that was shared by Abraham. And so we have the author of Hebrews write to us there in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10 saying, that, For he was looking forward again, looking forward to the city that has foundation whose designer and builder is God. Why was Abraham so trusting in him? Believed in him, even when he said, go ahead and sacrifice your son. He didn't say, but God, he's supposed to have kids. He's too young to have children yet. How am I going to be a father of a great nation if he's going to... He doesn't question that. But he knows that even if he takes the life of his son, somehow God is going to do something miraculous and he's going to live. And he's anticipating the day in which he can go and stand in the presence of God in his house, whose architect and builder is God. I think it's going to be great. Can you imagine Noah? All right, he's been locked up in that boat for a long time as the floods have come down. Finally, it settles there on, on, on Mount Ararat. And he's waiting for God to open the door and wanting to step out onto a new world and to a new life and to a new everything. We have been locked inside the ark of our life and we should anticipate the day that God opens that door and we can step into a new heaven and a new earth and let life really begin. So he calls us for diligence there in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. 
Since we know these things and we're looking forward to God stepping in an interactive work of history and changing things, we should be looking forward to all of it. And we should make every effort to be what he wants us to be without blemish, without spot. Now, matter of fact, those words, blemish and spot, are used at another time, but Peter's describing Jesus and not us over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. He said, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, we're supposed to be the same thing. No spot, no blemish. Christians are spotless, not because they are without sin, but because having repented of our sins, we have been forgiven, and God no longer sees us as sinners. We are without blemish. We are without blame. We are above reproach because Christ has taken all of that away from us. So he gives us a call to embrace God's patience. Verse 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, Peter repeats again the most important teaching that the so-called delay of the return of Jesus Christ is due to God's patience. And it's his patient desire for people to repent and to turn away from their sin, to receive salvation that he wants to offer them. We should therefore take advantage of the time that we've been given to get our lives right in a relationship with Christ. Why put it off? He may come tonight. And Peter's not alone in this. The Apostle Paul has also written to the church, calling them to get their lives in order before Jesus Christ comes again. You can read that in all of his letters that he has written. And Peter's saying, it's not just me. Read Peter's stuff. You've already got his books. You've read some of that. I'm going right along with him. We're in agreement. Jesus is coming back, and you need to get your lives in order. Now, he wraps all this up as Peter commands us to stay strong and to grow. So he gives us a command to guard ourselves against believing the lies that they're telling us. Look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Peter's now returning to his concluding remarks about his after his little side about Paul, and, and he wants us to, to understand that God is giving us an opportunity. And we need to remember what the prophets have been speaking about, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament, and, and everything's gone on, that we need to understand that, that we have to be on guard about what these people are teaching. The only way you're going to know about it is if you spend time studying the Word of God. And then when somebody tries to introduce something that's contrary to it, you can say, hold on a second. Give me the book, chapter, and verse on that. I I don't quite see it in there. But people are very good at twisting Scripture to meet their own ends, aren't we? We are to be on guard against this false teacher. And even though they may sound impressive, and a lot of people are following them, We need to tell a goose from a gander what is right and what is wrong. They may look alike, they may sound alike, but there's something in there that's just a little twisted. Christians can can be confident in our relationship with God by putting our complete confidence in Jesus. And and living in the light of His glory and His holiness. It's especially dangerous to be surrounded by people who are encouraging us to live a sinful life, and that's what they were doing. So therefore, Peter ends this letter as he began it with this challenge and this exhortation to grow spiritually. Don't let your faith become stagnant. 
I mean, it's one of Jesus' final commands to his, his own disciples before he ascended into heaven. In Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 19 and verse 20, he said to them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, I be, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We've got to continue teaching people what he has commanded not what we think up in our own minds. Now, earlier in this letter, Peter urged his readers to grow in their faith. So the very first chapter of 2 Peter, beginning at verse 5 through 8, he said, for this very reason, make every effort to grow in their faith, your faith with with virtue and with virtue, with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. But then listen what he says there again. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we look forward to the day in which You send Your Son into this world once again to redeem us, to take us out of the mess that we have made this Father, as you purify and cleanse this world again, we know it's by your desire and by your plan that as many of us who will, will put our faith and our trust in you and repent of our sins. Father, maybe that begins today in my heart. But Father, let it, let it begin Let us not consider that things are just going to be the same each and every day as they always have been. But Father, may we we trust in you. Your promises are true. Jesus is coming again. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.